1: Alex. Alex. Alex, we did it. Collective Bargaining Agreement
0: Pod. What's up, dude? Dude, we have to go back to like talking about actual baseball. You're right Not now. yet, we don't.
1: Not yet, we don't. We still have tonight, my friend. That's Tomorrow, right. we might wake up and have to preview the National League Central. But tonight, but today- on this day... We have a collective bargaining. Ninety-nine agreement. days later, we've broken format for the intro because we're breaking format in general for this. Because pod baseball here. has broken its its own format, and us in the right. process. Yes, uh, this is the first official tipping pitches emergency pod. Now five hours after the emergency occurred, but guess what? We have jobs that have to pay. Yeah, our bills,
0: and, and this podcast is not one of those things that's paying our bills. Years ago. I thought the the very first emergency pod we would do would be one Timothy Richard Tebow getting the call. You're exactly right to yeah. Queens, New
1: York. Can you imagine a baseball game being exciting enough for us to record an emergency pod for it now?
0: No, not anymore.
1: No nope. we wait for historic labor agreements within the sport of Major League Baseball.
0: Yes, we power through even if we're sick as a dog i'm I'm coming down off the high of a labor agreement and coming on to the high of, uh, some drugs that will put me out for the next 12 hours. So, you know, we've got, we're kind of in a sweet spot right now. Like I have have no idea what's going to happen in the next 45 minutes.
1: Clock ticking before the NyQuil sets in for Alex.
0: Yeah. Right. I think this is your cue to just kind of stall, right. And push this out as long as possible. (laughs) See see what you can get me to say. Don't have to tell
1: me twice, my friend. Um, We're sitting here to record this at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time. Listeners who listened to last week's episode will know that we were back in person for that episode. As you just mentioned, you are sick, so we are back on Zoom. Back on Zoom for the collective bargaining agreement is signed pod, even though I moved 3,000 miles just for this podcast.
0: Just for this, yeah.
1: We are going to talk about the highlights of the CBA, where our emotions are at now that it is ratified and agreed to and the lockout is officially over. We are going to talk about how the news unfolded over the course of the day and the week. But before we do all of that, I am Bobby Wagner. I am Alex Basley. And you are listening to Tipping Pitches.
0: So Commissioner Deals got it done. He sure did.
1: New through, York through City. sheer force of will. 2.30 p.m. Eastern Time. 30 minutes before their deadline of 3 p.m. Their third deadline?
0: Fourth? Third deadline? Fourth, maybe fifth? Or sixth? They were all kind of invented at this point. I would like to um, tell my, my boss at my day job to um, start taking a cue from Rob Manfred when it comes to my own deadlines. Because sometimes you just need to, to work through it a little bit more, right? Sometimes you just need to, need to bump the numbers up uh, a decimal point or two. Yeah.
1: But I think there comes a point, Alex, (laughs) at which the risk reward is just not high enough. And you just have to sign that deal. And that's where the union was at this afternoon. Uh, I mean, I don't know where to start because of course we can go down the list of everything that is in this agreement and we can talk about it in great detail as we have been all off-season. But I honestly think, more constructively, I'd like to hear you describe what you were doing when you received that push alert from the recently hacked and since got his Twitter
0: account back Jeff Pass into VSPN. I mean, ironically, I didn't see it right away because I was in a meeting, so I saw all the the tweet notifications coming. Corporate Alex doesn't care
1: about baseball, everybody! (laughs)
0: i saw the the notifications coming in and i was like okay sure right like i it's just john Heyman going off again and being like today might be the day optimism reigns and i'm like all right dude wow. we Breaking get it news alex has tweet alerts set up for john hayman you know these are these have been dark times <laughs> these last three months i feel like a you changed pushed man. this man to a brink and what did you expect <laughs> I know you're you're actually that's a good reminder for me to turn them off right now.
1: Um, That's a good question. Actually, who did you have before we get into the very, very, very important news that tipping pitches has been waiting three and a half years for whose Twitter notifications did you have on for this whole process? I had Passan, Rosenthal, Evangelic, and I think that's it. Those those are my holy trinity right there.
0: Yeah, those are those are the those are the good ones. (laughs) Relatively speaking, Um, Rosenthal, the father,
1: right? like the sun because of their relationship and, at the athletic and yeah. pass in of course the the Holy Spirit.
0: Mm-hmm. I uh, regrettably, as you mentioned, I had John Heyman on as well as. Don't tell me you're going to say Bob Knight. After don't that tell fateful me, night, because <laughs> he you. See, here's the thing: is when it comes to news regarding ownership he's kind of your guy right on the pulse yeah Mm -hmm. i don't remember who said this and i think i saw it on twitter but like there's a reason why nightingale gets so much of the player news wrong and is always spot on with all the ownership news yeah i think it was nathan bernhardt yeah there you go on
1: twitter a couple weeks ago when when bob was seemingly breaking that the deal was very very close on the one yard line and clearly that that didn't happen um I kind of missed it. Like, I I saw the pass and tweet when it came through, but it kind of caught me off guard because I wasn't able. I had a really busy day. I wasn't able to really follow the drip, drip, drip that was kind of leading up to it. I kind of thought it was just going to be another one of those. Despite the fact that I was tweeting, we're in the deal zone in all caps this morning once they had sorted out the international draft. And qualifying offer problem I sorted it out by just uh, not, it down the not road, <laughs> doing it right, exactly changing the deadline for that one piece. That's always the rules are very fluid here. It's like you can kind of just it is what you make it, and I think they got to that point where they were close enough in their proposals where delaying the season anymore was not really a positive cost benefit for either side, and so I think that's why you saw them punts on the issue that seemingly was holding the entire situation up. Um, but I mean, I, I want to know, like, what were you excited? Like, was your first emotion joy?
0: Baseball is back. I saw your joke about the A's, but right. I mean, I did go to Mets.com to see if, uh, if tickets were available yet. Yeah. and And they were not as of, you know, 4.30 p.m. or whatever, uh, right. I I think I felt happy, but like, I don't really know, like insofar as you can <laughs> be happy for a a labor deal to be negotiated in the sport that you have tied your identity to, you know, that ultimately is not going to go near far enough to actually fix the systemic issues in the sport, but will at the very least give some players some Positive gains in things that they were trying to accomplish, right, so I guess in that regard, it was nice to see the players get a get what amounts to a win, which is like still probably an overall loss for them, just given what we know about how much money is coming into and out of the sport, right just this week, and I, we're gonna record a normal episode on Sunday where we'll get into this more but but you know you had two deals break about m l b s Uh, streaming deals with Apple TV and Peacock. They worked hard to get that plus in there. Can you please show them some fucking respect? Apple TV plus. You're right. I won't, I won't sully Tim Cook's Hallmark project, I guess. (laughs) I don't, I don't really know what Apple does anymore. Um, All this to say, like, you know, we can get into the, the details of it a little bit more. I know you have them up, in front of you but i think it's important to say that like when it comes to the things that you and i talk about day in and day out and have been for the last few years a lot of those issues still remain and and can't really be legislated away right like things like encouraging teams to be competitive encouraging them to not manipulate service time you know that as soon as the ink has dried on this Deal owners will find a way to try and manipulate it because that's that's what they do, right? I mean, it's not a surprise to anyone. So, I mean, I, I think obvi- that they have the number
1: for Deloitte to find a, to find <laughs> <Right>. a way. <laughs> the, the number for Deloitte is typed into their cell phones right now to find a way to get around some of the stuff. The most efficient way to get around
0: some of the stuff that they just agreed to, not three hours ago. Right, exactly. So, I think that's why my expectations and my excitement has been... Tempered a little bit, but like I'm excited it's back. I am excited that I am going to be able to watch baseball in a month. Yeah,
1: I'll say, and it's very hard to have perspective on any of this stuff right now. I said this on on Twitter when I like kind of threaded my reaction to everything that was coming out about what is in this deal. It's it's impossible to know whether this is a win or a loss or whatever that even means in these terms to to win. If you ratify a CBA and enough of your members are happy about it, on paper, that's a win. There are, of course, like a lot of things that can change and like you said, the owners will be immediately looking for ways to exploit this and that is always going to be a problem in every labor capital dynamic in the United States and any other modern capitalist country. But the fact that you can get together a document that enough people sign off on, that they are going back to work and they are no longer locked out of their jobs and we as fans are no longer prevented from being able to watch baseball, I think that it is enough to elicit a little bit of joy inside of you and not to feel bad about that immediately. Oh, buddy, you are underestimating my pessimism. (laughs) (laughs) We might feel bad in two years for this podcast. We might come back and be like, this is the worst EBA ever signed in the history of humanity. We didn't see this $50 billion streaming to Mars deal that they were signing with Amazon mm-hmm. coming. <laughs> and the players have no access to any of that stuff. We, yeah. had, we had no idea any of that was coming. But how do we ever? All you have really is what the players are willing to stand up for. And I think we saw that when, kind of awkwardly, the executive subcommittee voted 8 nothing. Not to agree to the deal, and then it went to the the player representatives from the thirty teams, which is a different group of thirty players. The executive subcommittee is a separate thing. They are elected to be just members of the executive subcommittee. They represent the union as a whole. They don't represent the interests of just their specific team necessarily. Now, obviously, and a lot the, of
0: them are, are veteran players too, right? Right. Whereas I believe many of the the thirty team representatives are younger, more pre-ARB-oriented guys, right? So you can read into that what you will. It's so, again, it's so hard to to make something of a vote like this. I, I guess this is your opportunity to get your takes in about how Scott Boris had his finger on the scale for this one. So the
1: executive subcommittee is made up of Andrew Miller, Max Scherzer, Francisco Lindor, Marcus Simeon, Zach Britton, James Paxton, Garrett Cole, and Jason Castro. And those are the eight guys who were most frequently in the room bargaining. So they are most intimately familiar with each individual MLB proposal and how they responded to it and what problems they were trying to solve with it. And then the 30 teams all have their own individual representative. And this changes year to year. A different person is elected because oftentimes the guy will get traded or no longer wants to do it or is transitioning into a different phase of his career and wants to focus on other, whatever. So it went to the vote there because in the MLB Players Association Union Constitution, it says that in order to ratify a contract, you need a simple majority of those 38 people, the eight people on the executive subcommittee and the 30 members who represent their individual teams. Now, there's also language in there about how all of those people are also considered on the bargaining committee, which is incredibly chaotic as someone who's been inside of a bargaining committee, like thinking about that there being 38 people is insane. We had 10 on our bargaining committee. But alas, it's a much bigger union with much more interests in many different parts of the country Um, and the world, as we saw with the international players draft. So the 30 team members voted yes, 26 to 4. In a, in a very stark departure from the executive subcommittee. I don't really think it's valuable to try and glean all that much from that difference there. I, the, the thing that I feel most comfortable saying is the executive subcommittee was in the room. They saw the way that MLB wanted to treat the union throughout these negotiations. They saw the motivation behind each individual thing they voiced their frustration over the shady behavior by trying to tie some of these things to other things at the 11th hour and trying to manipulate the media to make it seem like the PA was rejecting them at every single turn when they were throwing these new wrenches into the equation, any opportunity that they got. And so, therefore, the players on the executive subcommittee probably were much more wary than anybody seeing this deal for the first time or seeing this most recent proposal divorced of the fifteen proposals that came before it. And I think that those 30 guys probably were probably were like, this is a good enough deal to get us back on the field, get our younger players paid a lot better than they have been in the last couple of years. This is the single biggest increase to the minimum salary that we've seen in the twenty first century. And I think that's what happened. I mean, you you could see some You could read into each individual line of each individual player's comments for the next five years, but I don't really even know how constructive that is because all of these guys are rowing in the same direction, even if sometimes they're arguing about the best way to row
0: that way. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, it comes down to just like a a vote, right? Like people are, you get 38 people together in a room and you ask them to vote on something and there are going to be split interests based on personal political orientations or based on your you know, experience in the league or based on how much you are currently making right now or whatever it is, but you can slice and dice it in any way you want. But I think you're right that there was kind of a lot of buzz about that specific nugget coming out of the deal, and it just felt... Mostly like a way to try and sow division among players which, who have largely remained incredibly unified in their, in their messaging.
1: Yeah, and I think it was reported immediately after that one of the biggest reasons as to why the executive subcommittee voted unanimously against it was that they felt like the competitive balance tax could be higher. And guess what? They're right. But the rest of the union didn't think that that was a big enough priority right now to not agree to this deal, to not enshrine all of the other things that we're about to talk about that are advancing the union's causes. Now, we could argue till we're blue in the face about how much the competitive balance tax really will do to help young players, younger veterans veterans and older veterans I don't know how constructive that is because like you said teams will always find a way to manipulate around it no matter what that number is but I think from a principled perspective like from a philosophical negotiating perspective when you're bargaining against MLB I think it's hard to see all these big revenues and the increase in revenue in the last 10 years and they're announcing all of these gambling partnerships and the Apple TV Plus partnership, and for them to push back so hard on competitive balance tax, for you to then vote yes for a contract where the CBT is only going up like $10 million or $15 million or $20 million or whatever it is throughout the lifespan of this deal, when you know that there's, n- there's what a 100% chance that the revenues are going to outpace that. And if you're on the executive subcommittee, you almost certainly know that because you've been deep in the weeds of this for the last 99 days and I that's what I would attribute that difference to um, We've probably spent enough time talking about that
0: <laughs> vote and with with uh, well especially just without talking about what it is they were actually voting on. I mean, do you want to get into it? No I, I think it's I think we should get
1: into it. The owners for what it's worth voted 30 to zero to ratify the CBA. They only needed 23 but they got all 30, which I mean it just goes to show like how easily how easy it is for the management side to tighten screws and remain aligned in this current moment of major league baseball. Like they've centralized the revenue so much that there's for all the talk about the differences between small market and big market owners, for all the talk about the Steve Cohen tax that they put the third tier of the competitive balance tax, which we're about to get to. He still voted yes. He's still aligned with all of his other 29 billionaires to keep this sport going in the same direction. So that's, just remember that's, that's that.
0: That's 700 millionaire to you, Bobby. Right, right. Um, I'm sorry to Bob Castellini <laughs> and Mark Atanasio. He was under there a go. billion. I think that's it. I mean, Management has always been incredibly effective at showing solidarity when it comes to fights against labor. And that's really just what it boils down to. Right. Okay. CBA highlights
1: time. Do you want to start with the competitive balance text or do you want to end with it?
0: You know, I feel like we've spent so much time dancing around it. Like, let's just, let's, let's get our hands dirty. Let's do it. This Collective bargaining agreement between Major League Baseball and the Major League
1: Baseball Players Association will start the competitive balance tax at $230 million, And it'll go up to $244 million over the lifespan of the deal. There are no meaningful changes to the non-monetary penalties in the competitive balance tax. So, a similar structure to the last agreement, which is you lose draft picks after you're a repeat offender after a certain amount of time. Probably not worth getting into the weeds on this. I also... Uh, failed to actually find if the tax percentages were the exact same. I did see Ken Rosenthal reporting that they were similar. So I don't know if you saw differently, did you? No. That's the kind of thing that we'll sweep up on Sunday, hopefully, after we've read the collective bargaining agreement once it gets released. The other main change that they did was that they added a third surcharge level for once you go a certain amount over top of it. So that was what I was referring to as the Steve Cohen tax. Alex, your thoughts on probably the the biggest most talked about issue, economic issue in this round of collective bargaining.
0: Uh it's fine. <laughs> like it's not really a hot take, but like should it be higher? Yeah, like could every team afford for it to be higher? Yeah, D- despite Rob Manfred's comments about you know, market deals playing out in market fashion. I don't really know what his exact quote was, right? But his point was that the players would like to see a free market and you're going to see that reflected in the, the, the on-field product. Markets produce market results.
1: The, MLB, the MLBPA historically wanted a market-based system. I think that the changes that were made in this agreement moved dramatically in their direction. Convenient for you to think that.
0: All right, buddy. Well, we've seen drastically different market results across the board for the last decade plus. So I love the way that
1: he weaponizes like the free market language, like as if this is a free market or as if free markets even exist to begin with, but as if even if you did think they exist, that this would be how you would describe it. Like this, they are fixing the market. (laughs) That's the whole point of being a baseball owner. Yeah. That you can decide along with your 30 other cohorts what the market is.
0: Yeah, I mean, ultimately it's obviously not really near what the players originally set out to gain and it's not near the levels at which it probably should be set given what we do know about the money that is coming into MLB right now. But they managed to move on it right? More than $10 million. It's a small victory, but I, I think a lot of what the players were trying to do is undo some of the things that came up in the last couple CBAs. So you were never really going to see radical changes to the economic structure, right? Because the owners weren't going to allow that to happen. So if it, you know, all that means is a somewhat modest bump in the CBT, then, you know, so be it. I think it's a little bit more than modest.
1: I mean, it's a $16 million jump in the first year. It'll be up at $244 million by the end. Do I think that that is an appropriate number for how the CBT was originally conceived or supposedly was supposed to exist? No, I, I don't. But I think that if that number is going to be treated like a quote-unquote salary cap that the big market teams are supposed to spend up to, I think that that would be good for the game if those teams actually spent like that. The big problem with the CBT, and we've talked about this numerous times in our CBA ABC episode about this, in our appearance on the Phillies Nation podcast, is the big market team that spends $30 million less than the CBT that decides to set their own hard cap that is $20 to $30 million underneath that. If all of those teams were spending up to that, yeah, we could haggle over whether that number is the right number, but it would be much less urgent of a problem and the union would have had to spend much less political capital on trying to raise that number so that the three teams that actually do go towards it or the four teams now that the Mets are owned by someone who actually has money in their bank account. I think that as long as those teams and teams of their ilk are spending that and spending over that when they want to be in a championship window, so to speak, then I think that this is an okay number. I don't look at this and say it was all for naught. It's certainly not the, the radical transformative CBT number that we were hoping for two years ago when we were talking about the potential work stoppage strike lockout talk, but it's not bad.
0: Yeah, I think that's where I come down on it too. And again, like we prefaced at the top of the episode, it's so hard to read the tea leaves this early on because we really don't know how owners are going to treat this. We don't know how close teams are going to be willing to get to that. We don't know how many teams are actually going to be willing to say fuck it and blow through you know, the first, second, third tier of taxation the fact that they were able to raise the CBT, the fact that the players were able to raise the CBT, you know, upwards of 15 million is like ultimately a a good thing. Right. Like, right. And I think if we're to look at this for, for
1: the CBT and then just kind of for the rest of the pod of what is in the CBA, if we look at it from the perspective of what were the goals of the union that they set out to accomplish this. And one of them was to stop the, Competitive balance tax from functioning as a salary cap and pivot it more back towards preventing runaway spending, as it was supposedly designed to do in the late 1990s when it blew up the '94 season. It was a it was a Yankees tax basically, and I think now with this number jumping 20 million dollars next year, I think it's going to expose a lot of those teams that were at like 190 and saying that they had no mu- no more money to go. Because all of a sudden, the competitive balance tax is now two really good players higher, and you're not even signing one really good pl- You know what I mean? Like, I think that it aims at accomplishing that goal, even if I don't really know that there's any kind of hard set number that could accomplish that goal without owners also
0: behaving appropriately alongside it. Right, and the tough thing is like, There isn't really anything that's incentivizing those teams to spend more money other than you hope that the market forces them to, the market quote unquote forces them to, right? Which is those, as you said, those big teams actually going out and making a competitive push. Now it's it's made kind of interesting with the expansion of the the postseason because obviously we have we are encouraging teams to spend more. At the same time, we're widening the field of teams that can actually get into the playoffs, which it doesn't exactly incentivize going all out and blowing over 220, 230 million. All I can say it's a blessing that we did not get a 14 team playoff because that yeah. may have that may have been it for me. I would have uh,
1: I do think again, then this comes back to how front offices and ownership are willing to conceive of their motive heading into every season and heading into every trade deadline, honestly, because it's now a bigger failure if you don't make the postseason. Like 12 team postseason means that you're a lot closer to contention. You don't have to win your division. You know, you don't have to chase the team that lost their division because the Dodgers won 110. You know what I mean? Like you now should probably make the playoffs if you're trying. <laughs> In the current structure, of Major League Baseball, so many teams, a third of the league, are completely punting on every season that now if you don't want to completely punt, there are enough players out there for you to go get a roster good enough to make the 12-team postseason. And I think that we should frame it as such going forward. Not that we have had a problem with framing competitive behavior, but I think that's a good opportunity to start talking now about one of the other goals of the union, which was to curb some of that anti-competitive behavior, behavior to try to make it less financially beneficial to tank. And I, I got to be honest, this is what the, one of the ones that I'm most skeptical on in this collective yeah. bargaining agreement because nothing transformative was brought into this about anti-competitive behavior. There's no real penalty that I can see with this, that if you just filter it through the lens of what did the Astros do? What did the Cubs do? What are the Orioles doing right now? Would the draft lottery have stopped them from doing that? I, I don't think it would. Like The Astros did their rebuild and the guy that they got with the top overall pick wasn't even part of the good team. They got the rest of their team with just other first rounders that wouldn't have been affected by this draft lottery at all. So, again, I think that there are still massive, massive loopholes, even in this new collective bargaining agreement, that can be exposed by teams who don't think winning is
0: important. And I think that that's kind of like the original sin of ownership right now. Right. And and that gets back to what I was trying to say up top, right? Is that, like, there is really no rule that you can put in place to compel owners to be on their best behavior, right? Because that's just not honestly, that's not why they're there necessarily. Just the with the way that profits have been decoupled from winning, they the, the incentive isn't there for them to go out and try and put the best product on the field. Maybe it's there if you have a bit of an ego, right? I mean, I think that's why there's a bit of optimism around a guy like Steve Cohen who many Mets fans are hoping just goes balls to the wall on his spending, right? Again, we'll see. But I think a lot of the systemic issues that have troubled the sport over the last few years remain. Even if you're rewarding teams with draft picks for not manipulating service time, which I still cannot wrap my head around. I still cannot wrap my head around the fact that we are rewarding teams for not doing something that was already against the rules, you know? Like that if you actually were interested in solving this issue, Rob Manfred, instead of litigating this with the Players Association, he would go to the owners and say, You gotta cut this shit out. And and I have a dozen other owners who are on my side about this. So, you know, put up or shut up. And obviously that's not gonna happen. 'cause Rob Manfred would be out on his ass. But I
1: the service time manipulation element of this is probably one of the most disappointing and frustrating things to talk about when we talk about labor relations because it is so out of anyone's control. Anyone who anyone who cares. You know, it, it's so out of anybody who has a righteous or moral worldview of service time manipulation to actually affect change when it comes to any of this stuff. Because it is so ambiguous as to why you would promote someone to the major leagues. If you, th- if you really think about it, what does ready mean? What do we know about ready? It's so nuanced. It's so specific. And so it's very easy to obscure. And like, do I think that promoting young players should lead to reward? Like a reward, like a draft pick like you're talking about that they just agree to in this collective bargaining agreement? No, like I don't think that's the right thing to do to reward bad behavior, basically incentivize them to continue to find loopholes so that they can bargain good things for themselves in the future and make that a new make that basically status quo when it comes to labor relations. I think that's fucked up, but also we could do this podcast for the next two hours, and I don't think that I could spitball a better idea for how to fix service time manipulation. Chris Bryant lost. And that was the most clear-cut service time
0: manipulation since you and I have graced this earth. Kevin Mather's autobiography is going to be titled What Do We Know About Ready?
1: (laughs) No, dude. His autobiography is going to be titled I Know About Ready and I Don't Care. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So we've now knocked off three of the union's stated top priorities. Three out of four. The fourth one, which I think was The most righteous and easy one to get behind was get players paid younger. Younger players have been the most hard done by the trends of the last two, but three really three CBAs. As we've seen your man's Billy Bean's money ball ethos really take hold in every single front office and have that money ball analytics forward mindset really become like a religion that these teams follow in how they select their players. It's really like which player is the cheapest, the youngest guy. How can we get the youngest guy to be as good as possible, but make sure it's still the youngest guy so that we can still be paying him pre-arbor arbitration salaries. And the union was like, that's a huge problem. These guys are contributing more value onto the field and for the product than they ever have in the history of baseball. We have to try to fix this. So they spent a ton of time, and I think rightfully so, focusing on getting the minimum salary up. It was at $575,000 in 2021. And heading into 2022 now with the new CBA, it will start at $700,000. It will go up $20,000 every year for the lifespan of this agreement so that it will end at $780,000. Just the jump from last year to this year will be the biggest percentage increase, like I said, in the 21st century for the minimum salary. They did good. And they also conceived of this idea of this pre-arbitration bonus pool, $50 million spread out to the top performing players who are still not yet arbitration eligible. I think of all four priorities that the union had heading into these negotiations, I think this is the one that you can really look at and check that box and say we're really proud of this.
0: I agree with the exception of how the pre-arb pool is going to be distributed because the money is going to go to, as you said, pre-arb players who perform well, but really who perform well in voting by the Baseball Writers Association of America, right? So an MVP or a Cy Young winner will get a couple million dollars. The, the second place players will receive a slightly lower sum, third, fourth, and fifth get a slightly lower sum, and and rookie of the year gets a set number, second place rookie of the year. And then all MLB team, you know, the thing that you and I care, you and I and many fans care a lot about, those guys get rewarded as well. Which I should point out is voted on half by media members and half by fans. Ooh. Ooh. The rest of the rest of the pool is distributed by war, which in itself is still like a question of how that's gonna be determined. If it's gonna be a proprietary number, if it's gonna be a just a blend of all the types of war. <laughs> yeah, just throw them in a the pot and there. blend them together. Yeah. But I I don't know. I there's something that is a little icky to me about tying a player's salary or or bonus to something that can be decided on by, say, members of the media, who there are many of whom I uh, have much respect and admiration for, and many of whom I don't, and don't really think they should have a say in this. And I actually think a lot of members of the BBWAA would agree with that point, that they don't necessarily want to be a part of that process, if that makes sense. So that's really the, I think the only point in that kind of getting younger players paid more section that I'm not entirely sold on yet. Everything else. Let's
1: do it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, this is a huge problem in basketball. They have a structure in their CBA where since they are a salary cap league, There is a maximum contract that you are allowed to receive. You're only allowed to make a certain percentage of the salary cap. Now, if you finish on the first team all NBA or you finish within the first three teams all NBA in your first five seasons, whatever, you are allowed to be offered what's called the supermax extension as a player who is coming up off of their
0: rookie contract or about to sign their second contract or whatever. That's an iPhone-ass name right there. Just Max, Super (laughs) Max, the Super (laughs) Max Plus. This is a significantly different
1: sum of money. Like the regular Max for a while there was like five years, 190. The Super Max was like five years, 245. This is a lot of money that is on the line here and it's voted exclusively by media members. And media members like Zach Lowe have been talking on their podcasts and in their columns for a long time about how that's a really, really, really heavy burden for the media. And it doesn't even really seem fair because how much does the media really understand about how much a player means to a team financially? Like that doesn't seem like we should cross those streams. And it seems odd that baseball would choose to opt into that problem when they didn't have it before. But I guess the counter to that argument would be the flip side is do you make it just based on war then? Do you make it just based on statistical value? Because then you start running into problems like we've talked about in the past or like when they first floated this arbitration based on war system that was roundly rejected and mocked by everybody in media and in the Players Association as well where you know relievers have no chance. Service time manipulation suddenly means millions and millions of dollars back in the owner's pockets. Like all of these things that then crop up if you do it just based on statistics. So I suppose like a blend of these these things is better than relying just solely on one of them. But the real answer would have been just knock off years of, <laughs> of service time or right. and let them negotiate it with their agents
0: or get to arbitration earlier. And the players right. double the minimum salary and put it at like a million. Right. Like right.
1: And the players association unfortunately backed off
0: all of those proposals.
1: So, yeah, it's not as strong as it could have been. It is not, as I've mentioned a couple times now on this podcast, the radical transformative collective bargaining agreement that we were hoping for two years ago. But I think a lot of young players will be excited about the increase in salary minimums and the potential to perform up to more bonuses, which they haven't really ever had. That structure didn't really exist. It's creative, and it's a way for younger players to get more money in their pockets earlier in their career in the event that they don't ever sign that huge Max Scherzer deal.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think this sets the table for young players pretty well going forward and hopefully sets a sort of precedent for what actually can be negotiated in the CBA when this comes up again, because it, it will, right? This is not going to exist in perpetuity. This is going to be opened right back up in a few years, most likely. And many of these same issues might be on the table. So I think it, there was a big kind of moral victory in a sense that the players really could go toe-to-toe with management and not back down and actually win some concessions, right? After all of the blustering from owners about fake deadlines and threats of canceled games and not receiving a full season's pay, the players actually made it work. They got many of the things that they were looking for. Again, even if it was not the militantly radical CBA that we wanted and were never going to get, right? Maybe next time. Yeah, exactly. We got to have Max, uh, Andrew, Francisco on. We'll, we'll chat them up.
1: Perhaps the Players Association could consult us before their next round of
0: collective bargaining. <laughs> Let me tell you, if the Players Association is going to consult anyone before their next round of collective bargaining, I would like to be the last person on that, on that list. I'm with you there. Um,
1: a couple more miscellaneous things. Speed round really quickly for you, Alex. Don't have time to go in depth really on any of these things, and nor do we have the details really at this moment. More on Sunday. But I did see some reports coming out that the Players Association expanded the union's ability to negotiate with sports betting agencies that seems bad um just a day or two after calvin ridley of the nfl was suspended (laughs) an entire year for illegally betting on nfl games seems like a bad idea however if the owners are going to pump their own pockets full of sports betting money i don't totally fault the players for being like I'm the person that's bringing this product and making it possible. Why can't I actually be financially
0: compensated? You're making money off of me. Yeah. And look, if Jeff Passan can shill for NFTs on his Twitter account, like the players can get paid from sports betting. Now's where I do the
1: Jeff Passan.
0: <laughs> do it. Emergency tinfoil cap on.
1: Emergency alarm. Pause the podcast. Pause the CBA discussion. Now is where I do the Jeff Passan was hacked because he wrote, a column panning MLB owners last week and he was going hard at them. He was on R2C2 last week saying that the media has been too kind to owners for the last two decades. Jeff, you're part of the media and you've been a mainstream baseball reporter with hundreds of thousands of followers for like over a decade. You were a big part of this, my guy. But the owners were like, enough of based Jeff Passan. We need to knock Mm -hmm. him back down a peg. So now we're going to make him into an NFT shill so that nobody takes him seriously. They hired yeah. some black site defense tech contractor to send him a phishing link. I don't know what that link was to, and I don't care, but he clicked it, I think.
0: See, I really do care. I'm so curious. what What is the link that a guy like Jeff Passett, who is, by all accounts, a very skilled reporter and seemingly smart dude like what is the the random link that he got that was like yeah this looks legit to me right it it wasn't i, I need you to wire me five million <laughs> u.s dollars right now to your twitter credentials right john henry is stuck in europe he's lost his
1: wallet he needs to get back <laughs> to the united states to sign <laughs> the cba and ratify it Please wire him $1 million in Bitcoin today and he will pay it back
0: tenfold so that he can fly his private jet back to Boston. Hello, Jeff. I am Rob Manfred. (laughs) Here is a look at the next collective bargain agreement. Click here for (laughs) C. Don't worry about PDF name.
1: Accidentally (laughs) talked to texted while driving and parking in
0: manhattan (laughs) Uh, i want to know i want to know jeff if you feel comfortable telling the people that this is the place to do it who
1: would we be if we did not derail the podcast for three minutes to talk horse shit about jeff Passon? um the players are dropping their grievance from 2020 in the pandemic return to play they filed a grievance for one billion dollars over lost revenue because the owners were negotiating in bad faith on that return to play and always planned to institute a 60-game season despite claiming they wanted to play as many games as possible. Uh, The players are dropping that. We kind of knew that this would happen. It still stings. Do you have thoughts on that, or you want
0: to just save that for Sunday? I think it does stink. I think it equally stinks that the owners, perhaps unsurprisingly, decided to slip that ask in at the last minute as they are wont to do, right, at the 11th hour, say, oh, by the way, can we also have this, right? Yeah. When you are so close to the end zone on a deal. Now, they, the owners asked for the players to drop both lawsuits, right? There's one from 2018 regarding revenue sharing, right? There are a few teams that that were essentially accused of just pocketing the money. That one is still ongoing, which I think is probably the more important one of the two. In terms of precedent, yeah. In terms of precedent, yes. But it still stinks and is just kind of shady that this is how that issue ended up being resolved, right? That it just kind of fizzled out with this CBA.
1: Yeah, it's just like yeah, they can get away with it. Just like they get away with a lot of stuff in a lot of aspects of our lives. And... I think the players association probably thought that this was a long shot to ever win in the courts because of all of the built-in benefits that owners have like the antitrust exemption like courts not wanting to anger large political donors, like millions of different reasons billions of different reasons you could say so they dropped it in order to not hurt players being locked out in real time who wanted to get back to playing but i i do think it just kind of just feels like a little bit like you got the the wind knocked out of you when you find out that this is dropped right at the last second um the last two things uh players can only be optioned back down to the minor leagues 5 times per season this was previously they were previously allowed to be optioned 6 times this will improve the quality of life of a lot of guys who get shuffled back and forth just one less time for you to get sent back down to AAA, so that the Rays can bring up another bullpen arm, which is good. I mean, that's it's not a huge, probably not going to be a huge financial win, but it is a, a quality of life and a, a qualitative win in a way. And then, like we mentioned at the beginning, the qualifying offer in exchange for the international draft that is still open. They have until July to decide what to do with that. If they can't come to an agreement on what the international draft should look like, then the qualifying offer will be reinstated back as it was in the previous agreement, the qualifying offer being a contract that a team can offer to an upcoming free agent that if they turn down that contract, then that team gets an extra draft pick. This is anti-player because that contract that they offer, the qualifying offer is usually not actually up to market value for that player. So most people turn it down and then the teams get an extra draft pick and it's like you get more team control out of it the whole thing it's very complicated we'll get more into that on sunday once i've had time to read about what the fucking international draft is and what it would actually look like because <laughs> this is a real area of weakness for tipping pitches let me tell you i want to close with this alex as we our 30 minute reaction pod is now approaching 60 minutes alden gonzalez an espn baseball reporter tweeted a screenshot of a quote from the rob Manfred press conference which i was not able to to check out let's do another stuff here's that quote One of the things that I'm supposed to do is promote a good relationship with our players. I've tried to do that. I think that I have not been successful in that. I think that it begins with small steps. It's why I picked up the phone after the ratification and called Tony and expressed my desire to work with him. It's going to be a priority of mine moving forward to try and make good on the commitment I made to him on the phone.
0: Your thoughts? That's rich, Rob. After the ratification, he picks up the phone and says... Hey, why don't we get along? Why do we fight? After slipping in those demands to drop the lawsuits at the 11th hour. After months of stonewalling the players, getting up onto a podium and saying outright lies that Manfred was called out about in an almost real time? I don't know. All I can really say is like I'll believe it when I see it, dude. I, you've given neither the fans nor the players any reason to trust you. So he has a lot of work to do when it comes to rebuilding that goodwill, which I mean, I guess I believe him when I say he doesn't want an acrimonious relationship with the players because I think that kind of sucks for his brand. But I think it also means it's because the players are fighting back and asking for more of the pie, which I think he doesn't want either. So I had a bunch of thoughts when I first saw this quote. I've gone back and
1: forth a few times because I've been on the other end of signing a CBA and it is kind of freeing in that way. Once you have this piece of paper that governs your entire working relationship and you then know whatever built in acrimony there is into the labor capital dynamic in this world that we have here, you at least know that you now have scaffolding to guide you in that, in building that relationship back up. However, I was reminded of Rob Manfred's quote that I read, and I forget who put this in their story earlier this week when the negotiations fell through at one of the fake deadlines, one of the seven fake deadlines that we've had in this process where Rob said when he came in and he took over for Bud Selig, one of the things that he wanted to prioritize most was a positive relationship with players. He felt like there's been so acrimon- so much acrimony in the history of this game, which I thought was hilarious because he'd been negotiating for the owners for the last 20 years. This is the guy that negotiated all of the shitty deals for the players on behalf of the owners. He was on the other side, taking it to him, one CBA clause at a time. And for him to come in and say that at the beginning of his commissionership tenure, that's when you gotta start doing that. You have to start building that relationship. From the jump, man. And now it certainly looks like you're just saying that because it's a cute thing to say once you've signed a CBA. And he went on to call the CBA an olive branch to the Players Association. And when I saw that, I was like, okay, I'm fully flipped on the other side. Fuck this guy. This is not an olive branch to the MLBPA. This is a collectively bargained agreement that they stood together and bargained against you. You did not give them this. You were legally required to come to the table and do this. (laughs) Like If you you had just been giving them olive branches this whole time, we wouldn't have had a fucking lockout. We wouldn't have had a quote-unquote defensive lockout. We wouldn't have had 43 days of silence from the ownership side. We wouldn't have had bad actors for the entire last CBA and the CBA before that. We wouldn't have had potential free agent collusion when all we had the free agent spending strike from the ownership side. We wouldn't have had the championship belt for keeping arbitration prices the lowest. We wouldn't have had the strike in 1994 when you were negotiating for MLB on the other side. If you were just handing out olive branches, what was all that stuff? Like, no, you did this because you had to. Because luckily, at one point in time, the United States was like, yeah, the National Labor Relations Act is a good thing that we should do. That would never happen again, but at least it did happen at one point. So it's not an olive branch, Rob. That was such a slap in the face. And it's just like Rob to get up there and think that this is the right tone to strike on this day, you should have just been like, "We're happy baseball is back." Let's move on. I called Tony. Congratulations,
0: Tony knows that. Like, who is that for? Who are you telling that to? Well, l- lest we we go out on a on a down note, I will uh, I will counter your Rob Manfred statement with um, with a statement from from one of our own, uh, true to his fromudgeingly self one senator bernie sanders came out with a statement following the end of the mlb lockout saying yes i'm very happy that that an agreement was reached but the baseball oligarchs oligarchs who are running this game are running it into the ground which is why i would like to introduce legislation to remove mlb's antitrust exemption Again, it's very easy to gain some political capital by saying that, as one Dick Durbin tried to do by just grifting off the news earlier this week. I mean, with but a it, name like it, Dick Durbin, what else were you going to do in life besides <laughs> grift? <does> <laughs> All I'm saying is, Bernie, don't get my hopes up unless you're serious, bro. Seriously, stop teasing. Yeah, come on. Also, come on the podcast if you're going to put out <laughs> statements
1: like that when a CBA is signed. Come on, dog. Come on. This is an independent podcast that's been talking about labor and baseball for four years, and you're going to put out a statement calling the owners oligarchs who are ruining the game, and you won't even come on the pod. Man, if anyone is listening right now who has any sort of tangential connection (laughs) to forward an email to Bernie Sanders that will actually be responded to, please, for the love of God, it's time. It's time.
0: right? If you haven't heard our six or seven, please, in the past, we're hoping maybe this eighth one. We're going to start asking. We're not going to keep asking so nicely, Bernie.
1: We're going to show up (laughs) in Vermont and demand that you come on the pod. I'll have just a boom mic yelling questions to you. You know what? I think you'd do it. I think you would. Alex, this has been the collective bargaining agreement reaction pod that we've been waiting to do for three years. I hope uh, everybody enjoyed it. We will be back with another pod on our normal schedule Monday morning. Hopefully, we. Have the full agreement to dig into. And we have the benefit of more time to sit with some of these ideas. This was kind of emotion and caffeine driving this one, for me at least. And for you,
0: cold medication, which you held it together pretty well, my friend. I appreciate that. Um, If you, the listener, have questions about the CBA, about the lockout, about how things are going to unfold over the next few months coming years, we'll do our absolute very best to try and answer them. Tippingpitchespod at gmail.com You can call in to our voicemail, 785-422-5881 If you have takes, if you have Dick Durbin takes, hit our line. And as always, you know you can find us on Twitter at tipping underscore pitches. Too much. Too much on Twitter. Seriously. Slide into our DMs though. It's, it's We're there.
1: We're going to spend a decent amount of time on the next pod just answering questions straight up that people have about the CBA and the end of the lockout and responding to people's feelings that they've been feeling over the last three months. Alex, baseball is officially back now. The next pod that we do, the Mets are going to have signed Chris Bryant and Carlos Correa. I'm officially back, baby. Back in New York, back rooting for the Mets because they're not locked out anymore. Max Scherzer is officially my team's number two starter Let's go Thanks for listening everybody We'll be back in just a few days We could
0: call it even You could call me babe for the weekend Tis the damn season
1: right this time I'm staying at a parent house And the road not taken looks real good now Hello everybody uh, I'm Alex Rodriguez Tipping pitches Tipping pitches this is the one that i love the
0: most tipping pitches so we'll see you next week see ya